0: to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. I'm Eva Monheim.
1: And I'm Hal Rosner. We are both certified arborists through the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forests, which include neighborhoods, parks, and other open spaces.
0: We will also cover a myriad of tree topics, including the important role trees play in relationship to the climate crisis. Thank you for joining us. We are proud to announce that the Planet Trillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. If you would like to be a sponsor of the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, please see our website at theplanettrilliontreespodcast.com and click on the sponsors tab. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monhai Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence, monheimmicrophones.com. This podcast is being recorded on March 17th, 2023. Kristen Biddle is a horticulturalist, trustee, and chair of the Horticultural Committee at Andalusia Historic House Gardens and Arboretum. Biddle earned a degree in horticulture from Temple University, Ambler, Pennsylvania, and brought her passion for gardening to several public gardens, including the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, Wave Hill, the Mount Cuba Center, and Historic Bartrams Garden. She then served as a trustee on the boards of the Mount Cuba Center, Bartram's Garden, and the Ambler Arboretum. Biddle has worked at Andalusia since 2005 and focuses on maintaining its historic gardens, manages the garden volunteer program, and sometimes gets to garden. Welcome to the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast, Kristen. We're so delighted that you could be with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we have to ask this first question, which is so critical for our listeners to understand where you came from and where you are today. You know, tell us a little bit about your horticultural background and also what were some of the earliest influences that kind of triggered those growth spurts towards horticulture? What were they?
2: Yeah, it's a little bit of a convoluted path that I took to get to horticulture. If I tell you about my childhood, you'd think, of course, she got into horticulture. I grew up in a small town in central New York and spent my childhood outdoors. I rode bikes. We played in the woods. We cross-country skied a lot because there was a lot of snow, so you had to figure out what to do with that. My mom was a Really big gardener. She had beautiful flower gardens, and also a really large vegetable garden, and it was part of my sisters and I our chores to go and help in the vegetable garden. And of course, there were so many fun things so we'd snack on the snap peas, and then for breakfast, we could go out with our cereal bowls and pick black raspberries right into them. So it was really just an idyllic time outdoors. So then fast forward to fresh out of college, I followed my friends to Manhattan and I took a desk job in an office building and started working really long hours. And you'd probably be surprised to think that maybe I wasn't quite so happy doing that. (laughs) But I didn't fully understand why I was unhappy. I had a great job, great colleagues. But during that distress, I started playing hooky at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. And just loving my days there. So when I would get there and I'd start to relax and spend my time outside, I started to rethink, you know, maybe I'm on the wrong career path. So around that time, I had the good fortune to spend some time with Dr. Richard Leidy at the Mount Cuba Center. And I talked to him at length about careers in horticulture, what it would be like to work as a gardener. And he, he was amazing and just so wonderful and really inspired me to say, yep, that's what I want to do. So he directed me to Temple Ambler and I spent the next two years commuting from New York City to Ambler to go to school. And I loved it from the second I started. And then when I got out, based on the suggestion of one of my professors, I instantly started working at public gardens. So I worked at Wave Hill. I also worked at the Mount Cuba Center and I worked at Bartram's Garden and really loved my time as a gardener, loved getting to work for the benefit of the public. I think so much of public gardens and all the incredible work that they do. So I was very passionate about my job. And then in 2005, um, I turned my full focus to Andalusia, to working in the gardens
0: there. Andalusia has an amazing reputation, uh, not only because of its location and what it houses, but how it's tended. The love that's given to that place is, you feel it as soon as you cross the threshold of the property. It exudes that, that passion for horticulture without any question. That's the first time I went there. That's exactly how I felt. And you can only feel that from a place that has that energy. And so I have to commend you for that. Oh my gosh, well thank you. I mean, we have we have a
2: small team, but we have an incredible team of really talented, very dedicated gardeners. Shout out to all of them, Bill, Jenna, Heather, Eddie, James. I mean, they're they're wonderful.
1: So Andalusia for our audience worldwide sits on the Delaware River, which uh and I'm guessing you're probably what about 15 miles north of downtown Philadelphia, is that about right?
2: Yes. Mm -hmm.
1: And I remember hearing stories that fascinated me as a Midwestern flatlander about how the early residents of Andalusia would actually commute up to the estate on a steamboat. And I thought, man, that is an extraordinary thing to think about and visualize. Can you tell us a little bit more about Andalusia's significance to the region and and the nation and, and beyond that?
2: Wow. Last to unpack in that question. Big big Um, question, yes. (laughs) Okay. Well, yes, I mean, I I agree about the, the waterfront. So I guess when you think about the significance of Andalusia, which came into the Biddle family through Jane Craig, whose father bought the property in 1795 as a result of the yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia. People were realizing that it was important to spend the summer outside of the city And many people were buying homes along the Delaware Riverfront. And six generations later, many, as you said, of the generations spent their time commuting into the city on boat. One edge of the property is known as Wharf Road, and it really did have a wharf down there. There was a dock. I think the ferry took people into the city at 8 a.m. and brought them back at 4 p.m., And then there's stories of the earlier generations when they'd come for the summer, they'd float their furniture on a barge down the river to Andalusia to set up shop for the summer. So it's very much a a riverfront property. And I think that's one of the unique things about Andalusia, at least in the Philadelphia area, that setting along the Delaware, um, I guess to describe people who have not been to Andalusia, When you come to Andalusia today, you drive down State Road, which is largely now a commercial corridor, and you turn in this wooded driveway and drive down to uh, what's known as the big house, the main house, which sits sort of in the center of the property. And on the riverfront facing side is an enormous columned porch. And from that porch is this gentle rolling hill that stretches to the Delaware River right to the edge with mature specimen trees. And then we have a a Gothic ruins to one side, and we have the billiard house, a small-columned house to the other side, framing the view. So it's a traditional Capability Brown-style landscape, an English Romantic-style landscape setting that has been that way since the beginning of the Biddle family's presence there. And I think that's one of the unique features of Andalusia, that that riverfront setting. Certainly from a historical point of view, the property has been in the family for six generations. And I think that's a little bit more unusual. And although we've been open to the public for 42 years now, which is hard to believe, but wow. very exciting. Yes.
1: Yeah, 42 years is a long time. I'm just wondering also, how many acres is it, Kristen? Do you happen to know?
2: Yeah, it's about 100 acres.
1: Okay. How does that play out with management strategies of uh, in terms of conservation and, and stewardship? Because as you alluded to, a, a portion of it is wooded. And I have to say, I, I guess I'm outing myself as a, a fan here. The woodlands are so pristine. They somehow are missing out on what so much else of the Delaware Valley gets to experience in terms of aggressive presence of invasives. Whereas at the Woodlands, it's like, oh my goodness, this is Woodlands that were around in the early 1800s. And fingers crossed that those first few polonia and Norway maple seeds don't blow across the highway someday.
2: Exactly. No, I (laughs) I think you're right. In our archives, because our archives are extensive about family activity on the property, We have suspected those woodlands are fairly intact. In 2020, natural lands came to us through a very generous grant from the William Penn Foundation, and they did a survey of our vegetative communities to help us better understand what we really have and therefore make a plan for how we can best manage what we have. And in those findings, they actually were able to say, yes, there is old growth forest here, they define that as being untouched for at least 150 years. They also identified some in Pennsylvania critically imperiled habitats, the sweet gum oak coastal plain forest. So yes, we have a big responsibility to be responsible stewards of the property, but we work really hard to make sure we're we're doing a good job with that. We are blessed with an amazing horticultural committee of um, professionals that really help guide us
0: through what we're doing that's really commendable i mean that was one of the things that struck me like with hal as we drove down the driveway to see these massive tulip trees which are incredible and you just gasp because you know that they've been there for a very long time They're not Mm -hmm. just newcomers to the scene. (laughs) There's seedlings, yes, there's seedlings in the woodland and it has uh, lots of levels within the woodland itself. I know that deer pressure is heavy in the state of Pennsylvania and that deer browse for young seedlings is an issue. But even that, your woodland looks beautifully healthy and happy. Oh, thank you. I mean, one of the things the Natural Lands
2: did identify is we do have pressure from the deer, and it was really threatening the undestroyed layer of the forest, particularly in the old growth area. So one of the first things we did is we set up a deer fence. And I have to say... It's been just incredible to see the change on the inside of the deer fence. Mm. So the first spring after the fence was erected, we found trout lilies, a massive patch of trout lilies. It was so much fun to see that. And by the way, I have to go back to your uh, tulip poplar pitch. They were my husband's grandfather's favorite trees, and he planted them along the driveway. And that's the great thing about, I think, having the six generations at Andalusian. And all of the records. You can see each generation's influence on the
0: property. So the tulip poplars
2: are his gift to us. Lovely. The
0: additions, the additions. And and the garden itself, and we, we have to kind of get into that part of, of the discussion. The gardens and the collections that you have there, again, when I first started coming there, some of the things that you would typically not see in a regular landscape, like Skyadopides reticulata, the Japanese umbrella tree. You have an excellent, or a griseum, that beautiful paper bark maple, that still, I voted the best one that I have seen in the world because I've been to England <laughs> and lived in England, and I have not seen anyone that can compare to that one. And those collections that you have within the context of your garden tell a whole other story. Yeah, in, there weren't a lot of
2: flower gardens at Andalusia for, for quite some time. So in the early histories, when you start with Nicholas Biddle, he really operated Andalusia as a gentleman's farm. So the area I described earlier between the columned porch and the river, that's always been that capability brown style landscape with the rolling lawns and the mature specimen trees. But behind the house was really agricultural. And in his day, he, um, being quite intellectual, was really interested in these uh, newfangled greenhouses that were coming about. So he built some of the first commercial greenhouses in the U.S., and operated, um, it was a whole uh, table grape operation that was very successful until the late 1800s. And around that time, wonderful woman, my husband's great-grandmother came to Andalusia, Letitia Glenn Biddle, and she, we have in her diary, she was lamenting, there really aren't flower gardens here. And lo and behold, shortly after there was a massive hailstorm, wiped out all the glass for the greenhouses, And the backbones, the walls for the greenhouses, she saw as a walled garden. So she started with a flower garden in the walled garden. Today, we keep the rose garden in there in her honor. But for a long time, that was really, in terms of flowers and gardens, that was really what was there. And then my father-in-law in in the 60s, he planted the green walk where you find the scydopetus you had talked about. He had a friend who ran a dwarf conifer nursery that was looking to retire. And he said, you know, this could be a garden. I'll buy your nursery. And he planted it out so it runs perpendicular from the river to the woods. And on the other side of it, there were maybe some slight flowers, annuals that we'd plant here and there. Um, But that was pretty much the extent of the gardens until more recently.
0: Yeah, the, and the, like I said, the trees, the ornamental trees, are you just can't help but stop it. They they stop you in your tracks.
2: They do. I mean, like you said, the paperbark maple is really the star of
0: the show. It's such a, a beautiful, beautiful tree. And and you have an amazing Amelanchier canadensis, which is uh, it's huge, and I've never seen one that big.
2: I know, I know. They've all been planted over various generations, and they're all uh, extraordinary. There's the Cunninghamia. On the big house drive that I love, then there's that big, enormous weeping beach that we have on the front lawn, just off the river walk. That's beautiful. So in the summertime, my father-in-law had furniture in there for for picnics because the branches go right down to the ground. So it's almost like having to break through the curtains to get inside, and then it's like ten or fifteen degrees cooler in there. So it's it's really pretty magical
1: that was under the cunninghamia did you say
2: no, the, um there is one over there by the cunninghamia this sweeping beach is oh. sort of off the river walk okay um, slope to the river
0: right
1: gotcha, gotcha. And, and
0: the collection of trees that are on the lawn i mean i know know that you lost quite a number of really big ancient trees on the front lawn but you do have some amazing persimmons that again some of the largest ones I've ever seen. They are so
2: beautiful. They're the the native persimmons. The They're thought to have been planted by Letitia Glenn Biddle. She is the woman of the Garden Club of America fame and Garden Club of Philadelphia. And apparently they were planted by her, but they're beautiful trees. They're large. They're right by the water. They have so much fruit every fall. They're really fun. And it's fun. You know, you walk, you come down the Big House Drive, you've got all the tulip poplars planted by her son. You've got Letitia's trees. You've got my father-in-law's trees. It's really great to walk around and see, see what's been planted over the years and the generations.
1: One of the trees, Kristen, just to circle back, that Andalusia said goodbye to last fall was a, a specimen, willow oak, Quercus, phyllos. Why don't we talk about that a little bit more? Because I was impressed to hear you and Eva talk before we started recording about the efforts going in to carry on that tree's legacy.
2: Oh my gosh, it was such a terrible loss. That tree, it was our state champ. It was on the uh, family side of the driveway, and I've been coming to Andalusia now for 35 years and that tree was always there to greet me it was like you know a beloved pet when you arrive home and there it was so I turn in the driveway and there was this beautiful tree there to greet me and it's such a loss it's awful we're still working through moving some of the pieces of the trees and I I hate seeing it lying on the ground it's just heartbreaking yes <laughs> but, Yes, we had this beautiful tree. It happens to be critically endangered in Pennsylvania. So it's an important tree to us. And through our various friends that come to Andalusia, we also were suspecting that this might be an important tree for global warming in the future and helping to move north. So we thought, okay, our willow oak species might be Nice to propagate and start sharing with our friends north of us. So we had all of that in mind. And then the tree started to be in decline. And then this summer, it got the hypoxylum canker and that was it. But um, once we realized it was coming down, everybody, including Eva, came to help. So we did cuttings, we did acorn collection. And so we're hoping to have some offspring from this beautiful tree to carry on its legacy. But the tree itself we've saved 5, I think 15-inch slabs and we are curing them this year. But then uh next year we will set them up in our forest in a, a ring to do a meditated or a guided forest meditation. So I think that'll help a little bit. So
1: yeah, so you're cutting them into slices that word I don't like cookies but Cutting them up and then staging them in the woodlands and this as kind of guideposts, if if you will, for forest bathing or forest walking.
2: Exactly. We were trying to think of all the ways we could use this tree and keep it with us, and so that seemed to be a really fitting way to to use a big chunk of it.
0: One of the things that you're you're very generous with is. Um, opening your gardens to students who are studying and to see the specimens that you have and your commitment to education. And for me to bring a class from the barns to come up there and to do propagation, they were blown away. The students were beyond ecstatic about coming and taking cuttings and collecting seed from your beloved Quercus philos. and Which brings me to the uh, topic of your connection with education and the commitment to community and your commitment to knowledge to help other people to understand the importance of your property and the importance of why it's important to preserve and honor
2: places like this. You know, absolutely. First of all, you know, from my background, I was, you know, found such solace and such inspiration at a public garden the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. And as I got into horticulture, I mean, education is everything for the benefit of the public. It just leverages that great feeling we all have about gardening and horticulture in general and stewardship of open space. But being able to share that with others and people who are interested in getting into this field, I think is really important, particularly as we move into this, which is hard to believe, a a crisis in our labor shortage, a crisis in um, lack of young people interested in this profession. It's such a rewarding profession. I think not many people know about it. So it's important to, to address all those various issues and give back to the community for sure.
0: And I know that I've had a lot of students come and work with your teams and have learned endless amount of information working with your head gardeners and taking with them to other places once they leave Andalusia, that they take that information and spread the word about what you're doing. Not only from the fact that you have a public and private side, which we haven't even talked about, the fact that public gardens are critical for dispersing knowledge on horticulture and our environment and conservation. And more and more students, at least from the ones that I'm teaching, really want to go into public horticulture because they see the need for it and how important it is for the general public to learn from public horticulture that, you know, this is what's going to save our planet. This is where we need to head. This is where we need to put our our bucks, if you will. Um, yeah. and, and I really believe that people like yourself and your family have really paved a pathway for others to learn from. Yeah. I mean,
2: it's so important. Uh, Like you said, you know, getting to work in a garden is amazing, but getting to work in a garden that benefits others is such a rewarding and incredible experience. And, you know, that's really at the forefront of all that we do. Providing educational opportunities for others, I I think, is so important. And you're right, that's how we, we further the effects and the experience of a public garden, for sure. And then, yes, getting to work with Bill is truly an amazing experience. And the rest of the team, too. They're all so talented. And, you know, I think that's one of the great things about gardeners in general. Everybody is so generous and so willing to share and help others be great at what they do. It's really a, a rewarding and remarkable career.
1: We've mentioned uh, Bill Fuchs a couple times, who is the chief gardener at Andalusia State. And Bill's guesting on our podcast, is available on the website's archives list. So, and Bill was a great interview as well. And, you know, speaking of going back, Eva and I are in our third year with the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast. And, you know, it it has been the thrust of one of our central missions is to kind of meld horticulture and the climate catastrophe. Um, And anecdotally, I remember a couple of years ago, Bill sent me, yeah, it was the summer before last, when that whole region of that Bucks County, Philadelphia County border got hit three times in one summer with torrential rains and heavy weather systems. And the water running across the landscape was just an outrageous image to have to process.
2: Devastating.
1: But it did kind of drive home that point that, Botanic gardens and arboretums, as Eva was articulating as well, are kind of the way that the public has access to learn about how plant communities are changing in given specific hardiness zones. You know, and we mentioned Quercus phelos moving north and assisted migration is a term I did not even know two years ago. And now it's, everyone's talking about it, you know. I mean, not to be the bearer of bad news, Kristen, but that weeping beach that you mentioned. I was at two symposiums over the last two weeks, and beech leaf disease is what the scientists were beating the drum about, and it was miserable. Oh, I it was like, I hope they're serving martinis at break, because this news is really sad.
2: <laughs> it is. I know. I was out visiting Wave Hill last summer, and they were talking all about that. its I just i can't imagine what we're going to do. A- Big section of our forested area is is beach. I mean, between the beach, the ash, the oak, blight, hemlocks before it. It's it, you just wonder
0: what's coming next. I mean, yeah. I think that that's why it's important to maintain what you have and continually monitor. As you were saying, you know, you put the fence up because of the deer, and then you start to see these um, species coming back. Um, I think that's critical and. To manage a place like yours takes a lot. And yeah. this is where I want to get into the fact that having gardeners, having interns, which is something that you want to do with your garden, have an intern that's funded so that people can learn from that internship program Yeah, is another critical step in that preservation process for that to continue on and also uh, to share that information with whoever is an intern and that they could take it to other places where they go to work and to learn. And so um, you are are putting together an internship program to have a new staff person. Is that a summer internship or what kind of internship is that?
2: Yeah, it's a summer internship. And yes, it's designed to have um, extra work in the garden, because of course, we always could use extra work in the garden. There's always something to do. But we really designed this to address what we were talking about earlier with the labor shortage and the shortage or the, the lack of people wanting to get into this field. So we wanted to give really a more apprenticeship type of opportunity for aspiring professionals to learn it doesn't necessarily have to be young people any aspiring professional so um whereas in the past this was a paid sort of garden job now we are pivoting so there there's more to the internship than just work yes you get a competitive salary you have the opportunity to work through all aspects of the garden with some really talented gardeners. So there's a lot to learn, a lot to be exposed to, a lot of opportunity to, to grow. But also there will be money to attend the Woody Plant Conference with our team and also money to take field trips to other gardens in the area. So um, I think it it should be a really, really good, solid opportunity to help newcomers.
1: And so let's talk about the symposium, because um, you put an amazing roster together of, of guests, and not only from the States, but some people coming over from the UK. Can you tell us about how it all came together?
2: Yeah, we, on our horticulture committee, one of my members, she attends a lot of conferences and symposiums, and she's often traveling to other places to do it. And she was saying, you know, we really need to do something here in our area, and why couldn't Andalusia do it? So we started to explore what might that look like for Andalusia to take on a project like that. And about a year and a half ago, we made the decision to say, yeah, let's, I think we're going to try this. So we put together a group of volunteers. They're called the Letitia Glenn Biddle Society as a nod to Letitia Glenn Biddle and her role um, in garden education and professional networking and put together this group and planned out the day. So the symposium, which will be our first one, is this May 4th. It's a day-long series of four lectures with truly some of the global leaders in horticulture. So we have Fergus Garrett from Great Dixter. We have Zah Tolomash, also a English landscape designer. We have Frances Palmer, who's so incredible. And then we have Annie Novak, who is the powerhouse co-founder of Eagle Rooftop Farm in Brooklyn. She's Phenomenal. So, we have a great roster of speakers, as you said. And the lectures and a lunch will all be held right next door to Andalusia in the conference venue there. And then, once that finishes, we'll return to Andalusia for the afternoon where we have an enormous tent set for tea. The speakers will be signing books. Terrain is one of our sponsors. They're going to have a pop-up shop in the tent, and then everyone will have an opportunity to explore the gardens and the grounds. So it's going to be a great day.
1: And so the proceeds from Andalusia's first symposium then will be directed towards funding that internship. Is that correct?
2: That's exactly right. So all the net proceeds will go towards the summer internship program. And if we're successful, this will be something we do every year. Every year, and the more and more successful we get, the more and more internships we can
0: we can have. I so love that. It's I think be great. That's great. That's really commendable because uh, in internships. You know, when I was a professor at the at Temple University, I would say to my students, there's several things that you need to do to be a gold standard as a horticulturalist, and it, it one of them is to at least have one internship. But. Yeah several internships makes it even better because you can really exercise your experience and try to see what area of of horticulture that you really are destined for because everybody starts in one area and winds up in another you know exactly. that's just how it happens so true and like you mentioned before
2: you know especially working in different places it gives you an opportunity to learn different techniques different approaches to gardening, different thought processes for, are we looking at native plants? Are we looking at the plant, the right plant for the right spot? How how does that play out? Um, All of those different things. You just learn so much in each place you go to work. I think it's really important.
0: And uh, now more than ever. This past semester, I had uh, the barn students. We had a landscape management class and and it was done a little bit differently this year. And we went to visit 13 different sites to see how they manage. And the students could from over over time, and listening to the people who were giving us the tours of the sites and the managers, talking to the managers, what they learned was where they wanted to go to work or what area they wanted to go work within. But they also learned the different types of management styles that each place has because of this different. Uh, characteristics of the land and the needs mm-hmm. of the land. And mm-hmm. once you have something like that and you're shown that or given that or have that experience, you can't take that away. It's, it's an education that maybe only comes in once in a lifetime to be able to see that many places in that short of a time frame.
2: Oh, I I totally agree. I mean, it's great to have a nice short internship process so you can explore a lot of different things. I mean, if you go to work at a garden, you can't really change gardens every year. So it's nice to see a broad array of experiences. And gosh, in this area with America's Garden Capital, I mean, there's so many different places to see that are truly just remarkable institutions.
0: Right. And we went to see from very small to very large operations Mm -hmm. and people could see where, where they were resonating. You know, the smaller, some people were, were gravitating towards smaller places where it's more intimate or other people felt like, you know, the university setting where they have all these big gardens would be better for them because, you know, they could manage a group of people or, you know, that type of thing. And, and I think that that's important when you become an intern that it is a added Value to your education, and yeah. that added value gives you the experience to take you on to the next next level.
2: Oh, I agree. In my early career, I had several internships or apprenticeships, if you will, and um, I I learned
0: so much through all of them. Yeah, and the other thing I wanted to find out too, when t- talking about this new internship, how does that internship fit into your or larger scheme for Andalusia? And we know that you want to have more internships, but, you know, where do you see this going? Well, I think we're
2: taking small steps where we're, although we are, have been open to the public for 42 years, when we first opened to the public, really the focus was on the house. And for a very long time, visitors came, they had a guided tour of the house, and then they were given a map of the gardens and you could go and you could have a self-guided tour through the gardens until you had to get back on your tour bus to go. And at the time also, you came by appointment. Your your tour group made the appointment to come see Andalusia. And then in the early 2000s, we started to suspect that maybe the gardens could play a bigger role in visitation at Andalusia. And also in terms of what we were offering the visitor. And still at that time, it was really like the wild garden and the green walk and then walking the the river trail. And with that, we decided, okay, we could add more garden interest to Andalusia. And so my husband and I, we started to think, okay, well, if we're going to do that, I think we're going to need uh, to bring in a professional and we likely need to have a master plan set. So we really know what we're doing and we're not just building a garden in one area to find out, oh, we should never have put it there because we need to do X here. So uh, we needed the master plan first and then we figured that would give us the roadmap for expanding the gardens in the future. And so when we were trying to figure out, well, who's going to do the master plan, we started looking through all of our garden books, garden magazines, and it was really funny. We kept marking pages that were very similar to what the other was marking. And when we looked down in the fine print, it was always designed by Arabella Lennox Boyd. And we thought, okay, I think there's something here. So my husband does business often in London. And when he was in London, he set up a time to meet with her and came back and said, okay, she's, she's the one for us. So we hired her in 2012 to design the master plan for Andalusia, and start to map out where we could add more gardens. So fast forward to 2017 and 2018, she um, the Green Walk was in need of restoration, so we gave her that area to start with, and. She redesigned two large areas and it was a massive undertaking. So it was 14,000 plants that we introduced over the two years and it really transformed Andalusia and it brought a lot more flower interest to Andalusia. So once that started to happen, we started to realize that, you know, the way people visit gardens is a little different than the way they visit houses you should be able to wake up and say I have the day off it's a beautiful day I'd like to go see a garden and just go and show up you might not want to have a arranged appointment from a month ago that you're going to visit with a friend so we started to play around with um, what a regular open day might look like so we started with Mondays we have some members of our board of trustees who are in the museum world and Museums are closed on Mondays, so we thought, well, okay, maybe we can capture some of that traffic and that pent-up interest for doing something on a Monday. And we opened on Mondays, and it was really popular. So we thought, okay, well, maybe we could expand that. So last year, we finally uh, decided to open three days during the week. So we did that, and then we had six open Saturdays throughout the, the season, And we're sticking with that plan for this year. But this year, our open days have changed. We will be Mondays, Tuesdays, and Fridays from ten to three, and then the six open Saturdays are this year going to be ten to five. So more access to the gardens. So, with all that in mind, we're we're taking slow steps to expand access to the gardens, to expand what visitors can see in the gardens, and with all of that, we we'll need more help in the gardens to manage it all and manage it all responsibly. And
0: that makes perfect sense.
1: I did watch Arabella's design get implemented over the past couple, I mean, a couple of years ago, I watched it in action unfolding in it.
0: Wasn't that extraordinary? It it It, was. It it was. Very extraordinary. Yeah.
1: And then I read one of your speakers, uh, Fergus, coming over from Great Dixter, it brings to mind a quote from my friend Todd at the Pennsylvania Horticulture Society who says, you know, when you go to Europe, landscape gardeners over there are the rock stars.
0: Yeah, they are. Uh They are. They are really the rock stars. That's exactly right.
1: And maybe that's how we need to rebrand it. We need to rebrand that in the United States.
0: And Fergus Garrett is, he's amazing. I mean, great dickster, And I remember visiting way back in 1996 and and meeting Christopher Lloyd and talking with him and uh, walking through the house and um, and then meeting his gardener was uh, such a treat. I, I can't even begin to tell you. And he said, can you believe that people think my garden's messy? <laughs> and we said, we can't believe that. We cannot believe that. Yeah. And he said, yes, people think my garden's messy because things hang over the walkway. And we were laughing because there were three of us horticulturalists there. And we said, this is the fun garden. This is the fun garden at at Great Dixter because it is so different. Oh yeah. And it's so lively.
2: So lively, so exuberant. I love how you call gardeners in England, the rock stars. I have three boys, they're college age and my boys, they appreciate gardens for sure. But they had no idea who Fergus Garrett was and I was trying to explain to them his importance in horticulture. And so finally it came to mind. I said, guys, He's like the LeBron James of gardening world. There you go. There you go. Went, Mom, okay, that's cool. <laughs> but yeah. it's all your perspective, right? But It the-
1: all is perspective, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I knew the time would go fast, Kristen. I wish you and the Andalusia staff uh, and the good people up there the best of luck with the symposium on May 4th. Oh,
0: thank I- you so much. We're excited
2: for you. Thank you. Thank you. Yep.
1: I did want to ask what your favorite tree is.
2: Oh, no. Back to the favorite child question. (laughs) Well,
0: yeah, you don't want to look at it as a favorite child because you can have a group of. You can have a group of. Okay. Yeah, you can have. There might be one that you remember from your childhood, but then there's there's always others along the way.
1: It is a question that makes uh, mothers squirm, but give it your best shot.
0: (laughs) Okay, so, you know, I'm not going to have a
2: favorite child at Andalusia for sure because there are so many trees that we've talked about, like the paperwork maple, the scydopetus, the Cunninghamia. I mean, there's so many, but I'll give you a hint. I do have a favorite tree and I'll give you a hint. I worked at Bartram's garden. Oh, yellow oh wood. it's the yellow wood. Yellow I wood. love the yellow wood. Yep. It's just my favorite native tree gorgeous spark those flowers are spectacular it's really something we have three planted on the uh the front lawn that just sort of going up the hillside i planted them in honor of my father-in-law and his two brothers so i call it the grove of elders but it's um it's the lovely little cluster mm-hmm. that's a lot wouldn't it be nice if everybody did that Plant yes, plan a treat plan for the benefit of your
0: grandchildren, for sure. Definitely,
1: but. definitely. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Well, this was a sheer delight to talk with you and, and hear about this new program and this new opportunity for people to attend. The symposium, again, is on May 4th. And go to the Andalusia website. Take a look at yes. that. You'll, you'll actually find the information there. It pops right up. And um, we hope that our listeners uh, take a look at that. And if you can come, think about it for next year, if you can't come this year. And uh, we really wish you all the best, Kristen, and your team. Oh, thank you both so much for having me. This was really fun.
1: Thanks for visiting us.
2: Thanks.
0: Take care. You too. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California.